Welcome back. This is episode 116 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And I think we had free reign on this episode, didn't we? This wasn't a requested one, so this is this is us searching for papers without any we decided any direction. We were just let loose. Yes, we were let loose, and um, actually, surprisingly little to do with snakes given the fact that we were calling the shots yeah we got a paper oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah snakes. it does usually tend that way doesn't it i mean yeah if you leave us to our own devices it's like what are snakes doing but this time more about lizards and even a little bit of mammals sneaking in isn't it so um yeah a bit different. hey there is a snake and a kangaroo that's true yeah there is a, the snake does feature but it's really um sort of a cameo from the snake rather than a sort of paper about snakes but yes, they're not the subject as such no the paper we're going to be chatting about is native reptiles alter their foraging in the presence of the olfactory cues of invasive mammalian predators published in royal society open science and this one is from 2018 and the authors are webster massaro michael bambrick riley and nimmo and so this week we're actually predominantly talking about smells Yes, which I suppose sort of connects, what was it, last episode, episode before, we had uh, snakes following smells to sort of gain a reward, be that a tasty pre-deceased mouse. And in this case, it's a complete opposite scenario. It's using smells to completely avoid becoming a tasty treat of any type and remaining alive, happy and healthy. So yeah, animals use smells to find food, but they also use smells to work out when they need to be on high alert for predators right like you know it's not just purely where's the dinner it can be i'm just gonna have a little sniff of the air and if they sense that there's a smell which could represent a predator they behave accordingly it might make them more cautious it might make them feel a bit less hungry you know you're gonna know that you need to be on guard if you're a human being and you smell a big fat bear you're gonna behave slightly differently than if you can't smell a bear i was thinking of the analogy of if you sm- smelled smoke or something when you weren't expecting it as opposed to smelling a bear Partly mm. because I've, I don't think I've ever smelt a bear in a scenario that would require me to to get away from said bear. You'd know a bear if you smelt it, mate. Yeah, well, maybe. That remains to be seen. Inevitably, though, before <laughs> we talk about smells too much, we need to talk a bit about invasive species because we're in Australia for this study. And just for once, we're talking about an invasive species or a, a multiple invasive species, actually. But none of them are cane toads. So... Australia, in addition to the cane toad, oh, which we're always, yeah, we're always talking about cane toads. They also have lots of invasive mammal species, or at least a few, and they've been eating their way through populations of all kinds of native animals. And there's been some cool studies on the interactions between these non-native introduced predators and the native animals in Australia where they've arrived. And mm-hmm. the two main species that we're going to be talking about are the feral cat, which is Felis catus. And the red fox, which is Volpes Volpes, the kind of fox that both of us probably have on our streets and gardens. They're sort of yep. quite a successful commensal species living alongside humans, rummaging around in bins and making their dens under people's sheds. Yeah, versatile and adaptable, I Absolutely. think, is uh, the old red fox's MO. Absolutely. And so there's been quite a lot of study on the interactions between cats and foxes and small native marsupial mammals in Australia. So the sort of native small mammals that Australia has. And as it turns out, they're actually bozos. They don't have any idea about these introduced species. When they are given experiments where they have to behave differently to smells, 
They don't recognize the smells of red foxes or cats as the smell of predators. And so they're extremely naive and they're at risk of predation from these animals. So given that sort of background where Australia's native mammals don't recognize cats and foxes as predators by their smell. So they're just dumbly walking around, not really that fussed about it. And obviously leaving themselves open for getting munched. That made the authors of this paper wonder, okay, well, we know that cats particularly eat a lot of reptiles, both domestic and feral cats are a massive threat to native reptiles all over the world. And that kind of led them to think, right, we need to do these experiments with reptiles and see how they fare when they're looking at the smells of cats and foxes. And so they exposed two different lizard species. Well, let's talk about the kind of experimental setup, shall we? They had a Basically, a Y-shaped arena. Y-shaped arena, uh, baited either side with some tasty uh, insect snacks that uh, both these lizard species would presumably quite enjoy. They tested that, actually. It was in the supplemental material. They tested to see if they liked bugs. It was their preferred insect that was selected for the maze. We bring it up all the time with these behavioural studies. Is One of the first barriers to getting this study to work is to ensure that your wonderful participants are actually motivated sufficiently to participate if they don't care well good luck trying to work out what they prefer we always remember that lazy iguana that just was not fussed it's like look mate i'm not going to open a door to get a lettuce i'm not some kind of idiot yeah another lettuce will come about precisely wait (laughs) but yeah so they got this y-shaped arena and the lizards start in the bottom of the y And then in either of the arms of the Y, there's two bowls, one bowl in each. And each of those bowls contains either crickets or mealworms, depending on the lizard's preference. What was it? We got Boulanger's skinks and marbled, southern marbled marbled geckos. And the skinks preferred crickets while the geckos preferred mealworms. So they've got these. I think that's a wise choice from the skinks. From the skinks. Mm -hmm. So, oh, you're more of a cricket. I'd go cricket over mealworm. That's interesting to me. I think I've yeah. eaten more. Wi- <laughs> I've narrowly eaten more mealworms than crickets, and um, actually, mealworms quite appetising. I think particularly the ones you get to feed to birds because they're just deep fried. They just taste like oil. Oh yeah, crispy. Mm. Yeah. But same goes for crickets, to be honest. So exactly, yeah, yeah. Eat more bugs, I'd say. So yeah, we've got these two different lizards with their two different preferred tasty treats, and what they did was in one Y, in one arm of the Y. They sprayed some poo smell on the food or in the area. And in the other one, they didn't. Yes. Well, critically, that smells come from your selection of predators, right? Mm -hmm. Your various predator species and a couple of controls. So that's probably one of the more glamorous jobs you could hope to get in the lab, really, isn't it? Collecting the cat scat for something like this. Get that in a spray bottle. Shake it all up. (laughs) Spray it on some bugs. Spray it on some bugs. And what do you know? (laughs) Well, the idea was in this smell dome, the idea was that in the presence of the smell of the scat of a predator, so if you can smell predator poo and you're a little lizard, the idea is that actually you, if you recognize that poo smell to be the smell of a predator, you're going to eat less stuff because it smells scary. And the the sort of extra bit of context for that sort of thing is you've got predators that tend to mark their territory, right? Right. And I suppose there's also an assumption that where these predators are more frequent, you're going to get higher concentrations of this this sort of scent as well. So there's multiple things sort of adding up 
which makes it quite reasonable that a prey, you know, one of one of these species, would be more likely to spend less time foraging, more time, you know, that it's this this trade off, right? You've got to get energy, you've got to eat food, but you don't want to spend, you know, you don't want to take your time and be leisurely if there's something that's going to eat you about. You know, counterpoint being is if there isn't something about that's going to eat you, well, you can be more leisurely about it and you can expend less energy while you're eating and you can take your time and relax. Now, that's assuming that all these animals are operating on this sort of optimization strategy of energy versus, you know, risk reward energy optimization, which I think might be a little bit generous in some uh, individuals' cases, but I think the general theory still applies that there is yeah. risk and reward totally yeah and i think yeah for that reason you know and i think obviously we've got the background to this where we know that the native marsupials didn't perform very well in this experiment and so going into this i expect the authors were kind of like hmm, i wonder if these guys will actually recognize this as a smell but sure enough the both species actually ate fewer of their respective insects when they were in the presence of the smelly area. They preferred to eat in the other area. Um, there was a noticeable difference in how much they were eating when they were in the sort of poo smell zones, right? Yeah. So what did we have? We had like a 0.6 of an insect eaten in the controls and 0.1 of an insect when it was predator-scented for our little, uh, little skink, right? Yep. And then 1.3 insects in the control arm so the ones that smelt like so the controls we didn't mention what the controls actually are controls are water so just you know spraying something that doesn't have any sort of animal scent and then one was uh some sort of kangaroo what was the species of kangaroo big red kangaroo wasn't it yeah big red kangaroo huh? and the idea is okay so you've got a control which basically has been affected in exactly the same way as the predator scenarios but the smell itself is the only difference and as far as we understand it kangaroos are not a prominent predator of geckos or skinks and therefore they should feel no particular fear towards kangaroos geckos and kangaroos don't have a relationship <laughs> they should not feel anything when they smell it as you say i have right. to correct myself though it was not the scent of a red kangaroo it was a big kangaroo though the eastern gray kangaroo eastern gray there we Macropus go Macropus so mm. It was yeah. big. <laughs> yeah, it's big, but not red. But yeah, so you had your had your gecko eating one point like one point four insects versus point six, and uh, and that just so everyone realizes there was no geckos only eating half an insect. It was like overall the average was that they would eat yes. 0.6. Yes. So most of them, or at least close to half of them, potentially not eating anything, and many eating one. Yeah, proportion of proportion of food proportion eaten, of insects eaten, yeah. but essentially. That was gratifying because, well, it just seems like good news, doesn't it? Basically, there is demonstrable evidence that in the presence of the smell of either a red fox or a cat's poo, which is considered to be a fair analogue for the smell of that predator, both of these little lizards are choosing to eat less and seemingly behave more cautiously. Right. But there's also this suggestion that they are not as capable of distinguishing predator from predator from these scents, and they have a sort of universal reaction to a predator scent, and they don't have something specialised. Apart from, well, this is where we get you know a little bit statsy, I suppose, is that there were two scenarios that looked equally as likely coming out of this study. One 
that they treated all Predator Scent the same, and that differed from both their controls. So it's like, okay, yep, there we go. Skinky's doing job. ID and the Predator ones avoiding it. But there's also another scenario where potentially they're not avoiding the snake. Yeah, we didn't really mention perfectly. the snake. Yeah. But there was a snake. Right, so they're, they're native predators. They had a um, something spotted quoll, didn't they? Uh, Dingo was Dingo. the other one. They had a snake. Pseudonia um, textilis, the uh, yeah. eastern brown. Yeah, so eastern brown potentially being dealt with in a different manner to the other mammalian predators. Well, to skink. be honest, it didn't really seem like they were able to sort of significantly behave. They weren't behaving significantly differently in the presence of the snake as compared to the control. Right. So Unless basically... That, yeah. <laughs> but you've got this scenario where the other model where they're all treated the same is equally as likely. So maybe they are. There's just a lot of variability yeah. coming from the snake itself. Yeah. Or the reaction to the snake. Yeah. So the reaction to the snake is variable. But if you lump the snake in with the other predators, they are like, yeah, predators bad. Yeah. And certainly you would expect maybe, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm saying that like, yes, you would expect a different anti-predator tactic for a snake versus, you know, a dingo or a quoll or a red fox or a cat or any other terrestrial mammal. But for these skinks and geckos, well, the skink in this case, I'm not sure what form that alternative anti-predator tactic would take. I think, to be honest, if you're a tiny little lizard and these things are like seven centimetres long in both cases... The best thing to do if you smell a mammal of any kind is just to go out, get out of there. Yeah, although, except if it's a kangaroo. Kangaroos are chill. Yeah. Or I suppose maybe the whole snake difference is if you've got something like a dingo, you can probably go under a rock, you know, into a crevice, and that's a decent, decent solution. Whereas a snake, that might be less viable. Yeah, you might even be better out in the open when there's a snake. Yeah, it might just be sheer pace, like get away from it. I mean, mm. obviously this study isn't, looking at that is just looking at which of these two food sources are they more likely to you know go towards and consume yeah in the presence of these animals so it hints at that risk reward and prey naivete thing but it's just interesting that the snake in particular is the one being pulled out because mm-hmm. it it is the different one <laughs> yeah so we can basically say that both Boulanger's skinks and southern marbled geckos are Responding to the smell cues of invasive predators that is likely to mean they're less likely to be eaten by those predators. Yeah, I mean, I think our second guy, our gecko, there's an added sort of point of interest where one of the equally likely scenarios was that the invasive predators were better modelled separately from the native predators. They were still being avoided, that was consistent, but the model could sort of pick apart that they were having a slightly different effect. Not significantly different from the effect of native predators, but it's interesting that that was they were grouped like that. Hmm. There's something going on. Maybe there is something very subtle going on between the two of them, and that might be something that sort of pops out if you were to do this study, you know, several hundred more times. But it's probably very, very subtle and not, you know, not a big deal because you've got two other models that are grouping them all together and saying, "Look, the, the geckos are avoiding them." So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they're not exactly sure why. They're not sure what it is that's allowed these lizards to discern these predator smells. It right. could be, as you kind of mentioned, that they have this generalized 
predator recognition system and they're just like okay it's a sort of mammalian smell that's not just mammalian but in some way bad and they're just like okay recognize well, ca- that carnivora i suppose carnivorous be way yeah. of summarizing it right because yeah yeah they're all, they're all well i don't know are quolls part of carnivora they might not be because they're all weird and marsupial aren't they oh that's that's a different yeah. question it's carnivora is, all carnivorous just potentially not carnivora yeah <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure. But the other reason, it could be that actually the only, you know, they can do this because since the arrival of cats and foxes, and it's been a few hundred years in both cases, there's just been... 150, right? Something like that? Something like that, yeah. I think foxes are a little bit earlier than cats. Right. If I remember. But yeah, it could just be that since those animals arrived, there's been like rapid, rapid evolution of their behavioral adaptations. So it's like... The cats and the foxes are exerting so much predator pressure that they've actually just evolved to know their smell. Or it could be that all of these individual lizards have previously encountered the predators in their lives and know them, know those smells to be dangerous. They can't really say for sure what it is. You'd need, I guess, like a cohort of animals which were raised in captivity in the absence of all smells compared to wild ones which have perhaps smelled smells. So side note, foxes, early 1900s, cats mid 1800s on that point of like the learning aspect they did only pick lizards that had their original tails correct i think that was one of their don't remember that bit criteria because i mean you've got very you know a very good point of ones that might learn rapidly and losing your tails probably sufficient motivation not to get captured again but the Mm. all these lizards were Originally tailed? Origin, origi- <laughs> they had their original tail. tailed. <laughs> I don't know what the proper term is, but... Uh, yeah, taily. They all had yeah. tails. So there you go. Yeah, seems like quite good news. You know, they recognise these invasive I predators so. as predators. Maybe they'll be a little bit better equipped to escape from them. Although, of course... Although... Cat and fox is more than a match for a tiny little delicious lizard. Yeah, I just want to sort of re-highlight that cool aspect that they did. The kangaroo... Because at one point in the discussion, they mentioned it might be a generalized disgust mechanism, just avoiding other animals' feces. But because you've got the kangaroo mixed in there, it looks like there's something more deliberate going on than than something sort of generalized to disgust. Unless kangaroo feces is just simply not a significant infection risk. But I don't know why. Well... I don't know. Carnival poop is pretty nasty. Carnival poop is the worst. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. But that's us, isn't it? That's our disgust reflex. Theirs might be different. It might. They have lizard brains. Mm-hmm. We know not to eat the poo of carnivals, but to yep. some animals, carnival poo is a delicious resource. They mm-hmm. think that was mm-hmm. part of the reason that dogs and humans became friends is because they like to eat all the poo. I might have said that recently on the podcast. It's kind of the, fa- the fact that's at the forefront of my mind at the moment. <laughs> It's versatile, I suppose. Yeah, I mainly say it to dog owners. You know, you do realize you you do realize why you do realize why. Just so you know, they it's the poo. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, yeah, that was cool. Let's move on to our species of the bi week, which is a frog, which is the same color as poo. That's possibly one of the greatest segues you've done thus far. <laughs> so this is a paper by Oliver Ritmeyer, Torcola, Donellan, Dahl and Richards, 2020, multiple trans Torres Strait colonizations by tree frogs in the Latoria. Now, I'm not sure how to pronounce exactly. I've been told it's Cherulia group, Latoria Cherulia, but I feel like it might be Latoria Cherulia. I, I would have gone with Cherulia, but right, we'll that's go with me that. and my ability to read. 
Latoria Karulia group with the description of a new species that we're interested in from New Guinea and this was published in the Australian Journal of Zoology and before we get into it we should say congrats to Jan Torcola because we kind of know him and he's an author on his paper which is pretty cool and um, all the other authors as well of course congratulations and what they've all described here as part of a broader paper about the evolutionary relationships of the Latoria Karulia group is a delightful little brown frog which is sort of plain coloured and brown. And for that reason, yeah. it's been called the chocolate frog. Its detractors have described it as a smaller and browner version of the common tree frog, Latoria carulia. But I think it's got its own charm. It's almost like it's made out of clay. Yeah. I really like plain coloured animals. I don't know why. I just think... Understated, smart, not showy, unpretentious. Not yeah. Unpretentious. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, yeah, look, I'm a chubby little brown frog. That's it. That's no it. bells, no whistles. Yeah. I don't need to try. I've got internal strength. Exactly. And so this frog, as the title described, was found in New Guinea. It was found in the swampy rainforests of New Guinea. And that actually is why it's been given its scientific name. They've called it Latoria Mira. A mirror is the feminine form of the Latin adjective mirum, which means surprised or strange. Surprised because the authors were literally surprised to find this frog. Usually species in the Latoria Carulia group are found in Australia, but this one was found in New Guinea. So big shock, you know, it's across the water, <laughs> but still closely related to the ones in Australia. Obviously, New Guinea is the island over the side what's the island actually called papua i the island is papua so. and it's yeah, yeah i mean you're making me doubt because i feel like you know that and you should, should be confident in that yeah I'm the island is papua is. no the island is new guinea the island is new guinea okay the eastern half is papua new guinea every time i have to look this up it's so annoying i don't know why it won't stay in my head and then they call the left side just papua but the whole island is new new guinea Highly confusing. Right, it's the other way around. It's, it's, the, it's the other way around. It's the yeah. inside. Yeah, okay. Regardless, it's found in New Guinea. And yeah, great name. And what is really nice for a change, actually, is that this has been designated by the IUCN, who decide how endangered animals are, as least concern, because it's not really surrounded by any major population centres. There's not too many people about. And there's a hell of a lot of swampy lowland to go around in New Guinea. What? So these frogs are not under too much threat. Yeah, I was going to say, suggested IUCN red list status, not actually designated. Mm. So it's Important clarification. Yeah. So, um, Ben, be can I just direct you to the figure which has like all the different types of frog in the genus, or at least some of them? Yes. See I'm it there. Observing, I'm observing this figure. Observing. We have a couple of little brown, brown yeah. uh, frogs, and then they get Look at the one. All I care about. Sorry, go on. <laughs> That's it. That's all I was going Okay, for. yeah. Well, talking about stranger, look at the mm -hmm. one bottom right, F. Yes. So F, you can see, is a frog with extremely meaty head lumps. Yep. That frog is called Latoria splendida. I can only assume because of how gloriously splendid its meaty head lumps are. Splendid is one word you could use to describe it. <laughs> it's certainly distinctive. Yeah, so anyway, those head lumps are the paratoid glands, which kind of produce toxins and poisons. And I was curious as to why they were so large. 
I'm not sure why the headlumps on Litoria splendida, the paratoid glands, are so big, but I did find out that the Australian green tree frog, Litoria carulia, that one, which also has quite big paratoid glands, if you bother it... They just look like fleshy, fleshier frogs. Like, for people who, who can't picture it, imagine a frog with just, like, an additional layer of frog on it almost like a bordeaux hound if that's a better reference <laughs> some insanely niche dog yeah well i mean that's that's all i got <laughs> i've never heard of it anyway the australian green tree frog if you bother it it emits this smell it makes a characteristic nutty odor from these paratoid glands and it's thought that that nutty smell the predators will recognize when they smell that smell Ooh, this is something poisonous either because they've tried it before or just you know evolution they the know smell. that that nutty smell is bad 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 I couldn't actually find specifics on the magnificent tree frog, Litoria splendida, why its parasitic glands are so big. Does it have a smell? So I just thought I'd say, on the off oh. chance that anyone listening has had the rare opportunity to smell one of these frogs, please let us know. Well, and additionally, if someone can nail down the type of nut, that would also be interesting. Because mm. if it was something like almond... A lot of wild variety cultivars, or non—they're not cultivars. They're not cultivated. Uh, whatever the correct word for a non-cultivated cultivar of almond is, are poisonous, right? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I wonder if maybe there's a nice connection between having something that smells of nuts and other nuts in the environment genuinely also being toxic. Wow, that's the next level. That would be pretty awesome if there was a scent, maybe not convergent, but like scent mimicry. That would be outrageously cool wow. but that's be awesome. wild speculation wow okay cool well there we go we've got a brand new species of tree frog the they've called it latoria mira what's the common name oh they call it the chocolate tree frog i mean that works it looks chocolatey i'd say definitely. melted chocolate they should have called it the melted chocolate tree yeah because it's, it's quite shiny and quite light definitely mm. a, a milk chocolate not a 60 70 percenter no way no, but really big eyes, horizontal pupils. The ear opening is very big. The tympanum, almost as big as the eye, mm. which is... All the better to hear you with. All the better to hear you with. But yeah, really nice, beautiful frog. Seven centimetres for the females, six and a half for the males. Perfect. Perfect, yep. Perfect size. Quality like a little truffle. Chocolate frog. Right on. Okay, I think that draws to a close our episode on smells and the chocolate tree frog. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can, herphighlights at gmail.com. We're also on social media. And have you got any other business, Ben? I haven't got any. I have absolutely none. No business. Great. Okay, so that's it. Yes, social media, herphighlights at gmail.com. And all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.